this latest podcast from Sea Trade Maritime News, we take the time to talk to DMVGL's Director of Environment, Eirik Nyhus, following the deferred MEPC 75 meeting of the IMO's Marine Environment Protection Committee. Held virtually in late November, a number of important decisions were produced on short-term mandatory CO2 reduction measures with far-reaching impacts. Listen to this podcast as Eric explains how a lot of detail on the new measures agreed still need to be resolved and that a large amount of extra ship inspection and certification work would be required, with the compliance challenge greater for older vessels not already incorporating energy efficiency features. We join Paul Bartlett, Sea Trade Maritime News correspondent, as he discusses these important measures to impact the industry. As you know, my role is primarily on the regulatory side. I attend the IMO meetings as part of the Norwegian delegation. I've been doing that since 2008. I think MPC 58 was my first yeah. meeting. I kind of have the backstory of uh, what's been going on for the last decade or so, at least. Yeah. Why we got the EDI, why we did not get MRV back in the day and got the DCS much later, why we did not get uh, market-based measures, even though it's now bubbling up again. So I have a lot of the backstory in that sense, and that, of course, does shape my perceptions. What I'm not very in-depth on is business perspectives of all decisions that should be, could be, need to be made. So there I'm, uh, I'll be more careful, I would say. I'm a naval architect from the machinery side originally. I studied naval architecture many, many years ago far more years than I would care to remember in the UK. That's good to hear. You know, and, and it's it's kind of funny because what I've actually discovered when we started digging into what the IMO was doing on the greenhouse gas issue was that it really popped up the first time back in 1992 at MEPC or at assembly, I think it was. It was There was an assembly resolution at the time. And that's kind of funny because that was actually the year I started working after university. So in a sense, this has been dogging me for my whole career. And, and and the way it looks, it's going to be following me until I retire. And maybe even into the grave. We'll, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> there are many challenges, obviously. But I would say that the two immediate ones are, A, time. Like you alluded to, 60,000 plus ships. We are now nine years out from 2030. That's not a lot of time to get things done, especially time in combination with regulatory certainty. And regulatory certainty is something we are only getting just now to be blunt, and we don't quite have it yet. Because, of course, we do know a lot about the EEXI and how that is now intended to work because it builds on this well-established EEDI framework. And yes, things need to be taken care of when it comes to determining ship speed, when you don't have the necessary sea trial data and so on and so forth. But we do have a pretty good grasp of how that should work because we have, well, seven years, I guess, now of practical experience with it. The CII is a different story. And I find, at least in conversations with our customers and when I talk at the, all of these online events and all that, the question that keeps popping up, of course, is what does this mean for my ship? 
because that is the departure point for taking actions, right? And we don't quite know yet, because the stuff that you would normally expect to see in regulatory text when it comes to requirement levels, baselines, application for individual ships, types and sizes and all that, that is actually still in progress in the guidelines that now are being developed. In formal terms, it'll be MMPC 76. That'll be the, when we have regulatory certainty. It will be an incremental process because we will be seeing knowledge develop as this correspondence group continues to work. And then we have the intercessional meeting in May and then the ultimately MMPC 76 where stuff gets formally nailed down. So immediate sense, that is one of the key challenges. Of course, when we get there, that's when ship owners and operators know what they have to do, then start to nail down what is the most appropriate measures they need to take for mm. individual ships. That is the point. They can start working on that now and get an inkling of which way they need to go, but mm. to know exactly what has to be done, they got to have that regulatory certainty. Then you start looking into the operational options, the technological option, the logistical mm. stuff. You start to get that hammered down. We've had the most recent MEPC meeting in November at which these various measures were discussed. And and 2023 was set out as the time frame for adopting them, I think. Entry into force. Entry into force. Will it be the 2021 MEPC that adopts them? Correct. We have adoption in June 2021. Entry into force then can then be at the very earliest 16 months after June 2021. But for practical purposes, the MEPC consensus points towards 1st of January 2023 as the entry into force date. Actually, by that time, the 1st of January 23, we will only have seven years for all those ship owners with all those tens of thousands of ships to sort out, you know, what they're going to do. Is that a realistic time frame? may sound a bit optimistic, but yeah, I think it is. And the reason for that is that we have this engine power limitation mechanism that is part of the EEXI. So I think that will allow for the EEXI to be satisfied by most ships. I'm not saying everybody will go for the EPL because there are options. You can play around with technology, retrofitting of equipment. You can do stuff with fuels, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that the EEXI requirement actually is doable for the majority of the vessels, not everybody, but for the majority. The CII is a bit more tricky. That's what I was thinking, because vessels will have to be independently assessed, won't they? Yeah, these are two independent regulations in reality. They came into the IMO as two independent proposals, but were then consolidated into a package for, I guess you could say, political reasons. It was a negotiated outcome, and so two independent proposals become a consolidated package. I think that you will see ships starting to increasingly struggle as you get closer towards 2030. I don't think it's going to be a cakewalk, but I think it will differ a lot between ship types, but also on an individual ship basis. For some ships, it will be quite easy initially. These are the ones that are, call them the the newer ones that have pretty decent energy efficiency already. They will have a good, uh, um, a better departure point than the ones who are kind of focusing as much on this. Mm. But there is a lot of uncertainty when it comes to thinking about how this will develop as we move towards 2030. But I have to admit that what struck me after too many years maybe in this business is that ship owners are 
extremely resourceful and capable when it comes to meeting regulatory requirements. And it's been quite often the case that what was seemingly very difficult beforehand afterwards has been possible. And I do actually think that this is part of what the regulators are seeing as well when they make their decisions. Even though they don't necessarily see how it will work today, they are pretty confident that the industry will be able to make it work. Would you say in overall terms then, if you were talking to your friends who aren't in shipping over a virtual drinks party, let's just say, would you say to them, yeah, I'm I'm actually quite relaxed about this. I think shipping will shape up and by 2030 we'll be in a good place. I'm not sure relaxed is the word I would use because that would kind of mean just laying back and letting things take their course. I think a lot of activity will be needed, but I'm optimistic when it comes to the outcome. I think actually it will be achievable. I do think that when we move forward in this decade, you will see the regulations will drive an increasing phase out of ships. I'm not able to quantify that. This is kind of a gut feel, but I think shipping is going to be able to manage that. But let's be clear here. 2030 is an efficiency target. It's not an emission target. That's a crucial distinction because when we start talking about actual emissions, we only have at present a 2050 target and getting there is going to be more challenging. We cannot do that with efficiency measures. We need something more. But there are some waypoints on emissions, even in 2030, even if they're not sort of cast in stone, they are there as sort of ambitions or targets, whatever. They are there as a peak as soon as possible and decline rapidly. They're not quantified. So in 2030, what we do have is the 40% efficiency improvement compared with 2008 on an aggregated fleet basis. That is the numeric target for 2030. 2050, we have both the efficiency and the Mm. absolute emissions target. I was talking to one guy who, he's a naval architect, but he was saying that, this was a a few months ago, he was saying that as far as he knows, 2008 levels have actually never been formally calculated or or estimated. So he said, we actually don't know really what what we're starting out from anyway. It's a little bit more nuanced, I guess, because we do have the total 2008 levels. But when you start to break them down onto individual ship types, which is what we need for the CII regulation, we don't really have a good grasp of what the status was in 2008. And this is one of the key questions that is now being discussed or deliberated on in the correspondence group. And there are a couple of different proposals on the table. There are also additional proposals forthcoming on alternative ways to calculate what the baseline should be and how to translate that to targets. But it's very crucial because this is absolutely essential for determining how much you have to do. Just on the CII, there's five categories. E, basically, are no-hopers. D, if you're in D for too long, you've got to do something about it. The other three are okay. C is a bit marginal, but the other three are okay. Well, now, there will be a lot of ships in D and E. They're bound to be because there are people who don't give a damn and their ships will be in the low categories. I know you say you're not so much in business, but from a regulatory point of view, those ships will actually become unusable, won't they? Not necessarily. It depends on how this is all going to play out. And this was a major point of contention, of course, during MEPC in November. But firstly, if you're in D for three years or E for one year, you have to establish a correct action plan and implement that. And then you will, of course, be assessed or taken to task later if you've been unable to actually lift yourself into C or better. 
there is no mechanism in the existing regulation, for instance, to take away your certificates. We will have some years of experience with this, and then we'll, of course, have the review of the entirety of the regulation in 2025 or by 1st of January 2026, to be accurate. At that point, I think we'll be seeing some tightening of uh, the enforcement uh, mechanisms here. But in the immediate sense, I view this both as a learning experience in a sense, but also with some very real bite behind it, depending on how port state control performs and, or rather what it does. We don't know that yet. But we do know a couple of things that have been quite recently evident. I've mentioned these in a couple of the points. One is the attention of financiers who are looking more closely at the uh, environmental profiles of their clients and the, and the ships that they're financing. But also, perhaps even more importantly, we're looking at shipping's customers who, with the sea cargo charter, this is actually really important. Would you not agree? Absolutely. I think it matters a lot. Actually, I think that in the immediate sense, the way sea cargo charter is going to actually be holding their charter, as it were, to account on how their chartered tonnage performs on a per voyage basis. That is going to matter. Though I do note, of course, that both the Poseidon principles and the Sea Cargo Charter, they are not disclosing individual ship performance data. They're only mm. disclosing aggregates at some level. But the charters that commit to this and the banks that commit to this, I expect them to be focused on ensuring that they actually are following their stated goals. And in that sense, it was interesting to note that the Poseidon Principles report came out just before Christmas, I guess it was. And we saw that some of the signatories, they were pretty well on track, but some were very far away from being on track. To see in a year's time how that actually has changed, that will give us an indication on how effective these principles are in driving change. Absolutely. Although individual charters are not going to single out particular individual ships, it will be clear, won't it, to middlemen, to brokers and to those who watch the markets closely that ship X or ship Y has actually disappeared or gone to Africa or is trading somewhere, you know, where these regulations aren't necessarily being widely implemented or adopted. So ships will eventually, they will be sort of singled out, won't they? I think that we're entering into an era of much greater transparency than what we've seen Mm -hmm. before, pure and simple. First, of course, we we have these uh, commercial mechanisms, if you will, Sea Cargo Charter and Poseidon Principles. They're linking their rating mechanisms to established IMO systems, the data collection system and and, uh, calculation methods that the IMO has developed. That's well and good, but they're, of course, not statutory in any sense, and they're not building on the CII or the EEXI yet. But the CII, for instance, and the EEXI, both of these are going to have their values, the calculated ship values and the calculated rating on their certificates. And in many jurisdictions in the world, certificates are public documents. So that means that there is a way here for that information to freely enter the public domain. Then, of course, we have RightShip, which does their rating system their way. And we have the EUMRV, which is a publicly open database. 
I think ship owners are going to just have to realize that their ship performance is going to become available in the public domain and that it is very likely to have impact on the commercial viability of their ships. You know, we're talking about a short time frame, but that's going to happen really in the next few years, isn't it? Long before 2030, actually. Yeah, it's already happening. So I think it's just going to ramp up, to be honest. Now, the role of classification societies, I mean, it's a very competitive marketplace, you know, particularly with fewer ships being ordered and the difficulties associated with COVID and all those short measures. But in the future, there will be a requirement for independent verification and audits and proper measurements. What role will classification societies play in this, do you think? I guess you could say we have two key roles and two very separate roles in this field. One, of course, is the statutory role, the role that we have as a recognized organization where we are assigned tasks and responsibilities by the flag administrations. This is everything that links to the certificates, uh, verification, the audits that you mentioned, conformity of various plans, all of that statutory stuff. This is kind of the bread and butter or the way we link to the flag administration, right? So that's one part of it. And there is some details that still need to be fleshed out, of course. So when it comes to the CII and the new SEM, the Ship Energy Efficiency Management Plan, it's additions to that. But I I think that role will remain more or less the way it is today. Then, of course, we have the other part of our business, which is all the advisory stuff that's being done by all of us. I guess you can divide it into multiple prongs. You can, speaking for ourselves, of course, we, we, we do strategic advisory in the sense of informing clients about what is actually happening, what is the implications that this may have on their broader business, what are the implications on a fleet level, and essentially making them aware of the long-term prospects for the regulatory outlook and how that might impact business. Then we dive into that more sort of more technical stuff where you can actually look at individual ships and check is this ship going to be okay with respect to the EEXI or not. The regulation has not entered into force yet, obviously, but is the ship okay? Is it not okay? If it's not okay, what do we advise that you do to bring this ship into conformity by the due date, et cetera, et cetera? So that's another angle to that. Then, of course, we have the linkages to entities such as the Poseidon Principles and Sea Cargo Charter, where if a ship owner is open to it, we can function as an information conduit between them and the banks, because we sit on a lot of the information that the bank used to calculate the individual ship values. This is data we obviously cannot just give away to the bank. That has to be explicitly given permission or instructions by the data owner, which would be the ship. But we do that. If a ship owner tells us, well, we are engaged with the Poseidon principles, we need you to provide them the DCS data, and here's our instructions accordingly, then we do that. Is that happening already? That's happening already in some cases. But let me just be very, very clear on this. We are not giving away information that belongs to others. What we are doing is on very explicit instructions, helping data owner to make sure the banks get the right information. It's for us, that's a very, very important distinction. In the short run, we're not really looking at the range of dramatically new fuels that people are talking about for 
possible development over the next three decades. But we are looking at LNG and biofuels in the shorter run. And I know that DNVGL has been a great advocate of LNG as a transition fuel. And indeed, Mr. Knut, uh, Mr. Herbert Nielsen said to me the other day that he thinks, as does the classification society, that, you know, it's basically one or two generations of ships that could well be using LNG and its derivatives while new fuels are developed. But there are still issues with LNG and plenty of people who say it's not the way forward. What would you say as a regulatory expert in terms of the pathway ahead? There are several dimensions to this one as well. There are no easy questions or easy answers in this business. But firstly, Let's just focus on the ship because this whole uh, well-to-wake business is also a complex uh, story when you start looking at production and transportation and storage. Yeah. Just looking at the ship itself, LNG, of course, does represent a fairly significant reduction in CO2 emissions compared with mm. conventional fuels. But as you alluded to, we have this whole issue of methane mm. and methane slip. You know, well, let's just bring put it on the table. Uh, the latest greenhouse gas study, for instance, points to a very significant increase in mm. methane emissions on a percentage basis, not mm. in absolute tons as such, but on a percentage basis. That, of course, is primarily due to uh, the shift away from turbines to internal combustion engines, where mm. you don't have intrinsic slip in turbines, not for any practical purpose, but you do have that in combustion engines. We think it's a solvable issue. The mm. technology is improving significantly. Methane slip today is a lot lower than it used to be. And the engine manufacturers have great confidence that they can bring this even further down. We have mm. to bear in mind that first LNG engines, they were not thinking of CO2 at that time, mm. to be honest. It was about NOx and SOx. So the optimization has been going on and newer engines coming out to market now have very, very much lower methane slip than the old ones. From a regulatory perspective, I think that IMO at some point is going to regulate this, maybe similar to the NOx code or something like that, yeah. and set threshold values. That would also, of course, represent an incentive to engine manufacturers to make sure that they stay within the bounds. Yeah. And finally, going back to that 150% in the fourth IMO greenhouse gas study, I would also like to point out at least that when we've crunched the figures, we agree that with the increase in the methane emissions, but what should also be recognized is that because of the much greater inherent efficiency of the internal combustion engines that have replaced those turbines, the absolute greenhouse gas footprint, i.e. CO2 and methane in total, yeah. is less than it used to be. So you cannot look at that 150% figure in isolation. You have to take more holistic look at it, to be honest. So actually, that fourth greenhouse gas study, on which some of the opponents of LNG have rested their cases, that's actually not correct, is it? Well, I wouldn't say it's incorrect, because the data is there. It's just that you have, as is pretty common, people cherry-pick their arguments, right? They pick out the one facet, and rather than looking at the, the, the picture more holistically. So it's not that the study is incorrect as such, because the data is there. It's just that, you you know, you just you look at that one figure, mm. uh, and you don't look as closely at the other data. It's a very common fallacy, I think. Okay. Well, now, look, you said cautiously there that you wanted to focus on the ship, but 
Can we have a look just briefly at the bigger picture? Because, you know, there's an opportunity of getting biofuel from from the agricultural sector, which would mean that that we'd lose the methane that goes into the atmosphere from from cows and from what they produce, all sorts of complicated agricultural arguments. But it would be a very good way of uh, knocking out some of the methane that goes into the atmosphere already particularly if we could handle it effectively in the engines which ships use. But we're talking here about the supply chain, obviously, and I'm talking beyond 2030 now, you know, down the track when we could use fish waste or agricultural waste as follow-ons from LNG or as drop-ins maybe. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why we think LNG technology, LNG engines, storage tanks, the piping, and all of this stuff has a future that goes beyond fossil LNG. And, you know, we get into a murky landscape here because the terminology is a little bit uh, slippery because we are looking at the same kind of molecule, the CH4, the, the methane molecule, yeah. but it all depends on how it is actually produced. When it If it's, it's fossil, comes out of the ground, that's one story. If it's from uh, fermentation of fish, fish waste or turkey waste or whatever, it's a, it's a totally different story when it comes to the total greenhouse gas footprint. Yeah. But one of the things that we really like about LNG, of course, is that it opens up for a drop-in of either bio-LNG, uh, synthetic LNG, or e-LNG without having to swap out all the infrastructure, both on land and on ships. Ammonia is in many ways a very interesting fuel. If you look at synthetic ammonia, it's a lot more cost effective than synthetic LNG or synthetic methane. But of course, it has the barrier of uh, requiring a totally different infrastructure and totally different tank systems, engine uh, retrofits on on ships. So there's this trade-off between what can be more or less ideal and what can function as a drop-in and provide good benefits early on and not facing barriers that may be insurmountable or maybe even, at the very least, delay implementation. We're getting back to this whole uh, the perfect being the enemy of the good kind of discussions. It'll take a while before we actually manage to resolve those. This is one of the reasons why we are very sympathetic to drop-in fuels. And it wouldn't only be drop-in LNG or drop-in biomethane. You'd see the same with biofuels. You'd see the same with synthetic liquid fuels. And that brings us to hydrogen, of course. Not necessarily as a fuel, but as a feedstock for all these other synthetic fuels, including ammonia, that can become relevant for the maritime industry. I think it's very hard to say what the final outcome is going to be when we look into the future. Mm. But I'd say dropping fuels in general are very interesting and kind of the basis for a lot of the transitional thinking. Specifically, with methanol is interesting. Assuming that we can get ammonia technology to work, of mm. course, uh, engine manufacturers still haven't put an engine on the market, uh, though I do think they're very clever people and will be able to figure out a way to make this stuff burn. Was it WinGD, I think, or it's one of the big ones said that, that, it's, that there was nothing impossible about burning ammonia in an internal combustion engine. True. From experience, know that one thing, of course, is getting something that uh, burns in the lab. Mm. Not necessarily as easy as having something that works for a long time under field conditions. 
there are questions, of course, with the amount of pilot fuel that you'll be needing, because you will likely be needing pilot fuel. There is questions regarding not methane slip, but N2O slip, nitrous oxides, which is a very potent uh, greenhouse gas. So there is a lot of technical stuff that needs to be resolved. But I think, you know, if the incentives are there, if the more potential market is there, the engine manufacturers are going to be able to figure this out. In this session, we listened to Eirik Dijhus, DMV GL's Director of Environment, look at the new measures agreed at the MEPC 75 meeting and explain why he is confident, despite a challenging time ahead, that ship owners will meet the 2030 efficiency target. Thank you for joining the latest podcast from Sea Trade Maritime News.